0: I'm glad that you're here today because this is a lesson that you can readily apply in your life. Journey toward reconciliation. In today's lesson we are seeking to get Joseph reconciled with his brothers who sold him into slavery. But we're learning that reconciliation is a process, a journey if you will. You may not arrive all in one day. So this morning, we want to consider a key component in the process that will move us a step closer to the destination of reconciliation. This key ingredient would be forgiveness. So after our introduction, we're going to take a look at some folks motivated by hunger, activated by hope, then intimidated to humility, and we'll see the anticipated harmony that seems to be coming together in God's plan. Paul J. Meyer is a successful businessman and best-selling author, and he gives his own testimony in a book entitled Forgiveness, The Ultimate Miracle. He says, as far as I can remember, my father never forgave a soul. It didn't matter who the offending individual was. Take Uncle Otto, for example, my dad's only brother-in-law. Dad told him, stop speaking German in my house or you will never be permitted back inside these doors. We're in America now, so speak English. Uncle Otto spoke German once again and that was that, no more Otto. He was never permitted in our home again. At Thanksgiving, Otto would park his car at the end of the road, end of the lane, and his wife, my mom's sister, would walk a hundred yards to our house and eat with us. Otto stayed in the car the entire time. I would sneak out the back door with a plate of food, hop the fence, scurry along the fence line until I was behind the car, then climb back over the fence to give Otto his Thanksgiving meal. My father had three sisters, but only one of them came to America. She lived just 40 miles from our home in California. At my birth, she had the misfortune of mentioning that I had large ears, From that moment on, my dad refused to talk to her. So for 35 years, despite the fact that she lived close by and she was my father's only relative in this country, he never spoke to her again. No matter how hard and awkward it made life, he refused to forgive anyone. Don't get me wrong, I love my dad. He's an absolute genius in many areas. I trace my determination to him, my quest for improvement definitely comes from his influence. He was a phenomenal teacher and example, and I thank God for him. Without question, I would not be the man I am today if it were not for my dad, but he had a problem with forgiveness. He died agonizingly over a seven-year period, probably giving himself more than 5,000 shots of Demerol during those long seven years. I'm not a doctor, but I have a suspicion that much of what ailed him came as a result of his unforgiving attitude. My mother, on the other hand, absolutely forgave everyone. One evening when I was young, my mother had prepared a delicious dinner, working most of the day to get it just right. When my father came home, he was in a bad mood and for some unknown reason decided to take it out uh, his frustration at dinner time. He took the four corners of the tablecloth, folding the entire meal of food and dishes into a bundle, and threw it out the back door. I could not believe my eyes. I asked my mother about it. She said, I've been married to him for 22 years and have always turned the other cheek. Then she said, I have a long way to go before I reach 70 times 7. She could forgive because she wanted to forgive. She chose to forgive. She preferred to live with forgiveness than to live with unforgiveness. As a result, she had such peace and joy that it bubbled out of her life. So here is a man that has to make a decision for himself, and he sees two opposite extremes in his home. So when he was 16 years old, he decided what his decision would be. I like your deal a lot better, he told his mom one day. You're happy and have a lot of friends, but dad's unforgiving and doesn't have many friends. Mom said, Paul, you're at a crossroads. Your choice to forgive or not to forgive will impact the rest of your life. She was exactly right. So I chose forgiveness. Last week, we saw a major step In God's providential plan to get his people down under the protection of a world power so that they could grow into a nation. He's got Joseph down in Egypt and now the famine has come and in Paul's last message uh, on Genesis 42, he had sent the brothers down to get some food. That was their first trip. Why could not they have been reconciled with Joseph right then and there on that first trip. Well, Benjamin was missing but there is another more important reason. There are some necessary components of true reconciliation and Joseph wanted to see that everything was in place in the hearts of his brothers before the reconciliation could be completed. It will be observable in people's attitudes and actions when there is true repentance. So in today's lesson, some time has passed. Simeon is still being held captive in jail down in Egypt until the brothers return with the younger brother, Benjamin, that we read about. The first load of grain has been consumed, and the people on the home front are getting hungry. Hunger is a powerful motivator. Now in verses 1 through 3, Jacob suggests that the brothers make another trip down to Egypt. And Judah, who is taking the leadership position now, suggests that they can't go back to Egypt unless they have the younger brother. You remember the eldest brother, uh, Reuben, was immoral. Simeon was in jail down in Egypt. Levi and Simeon were guilty of murdering the men in Shechem, and now we've come down to the fourth born, Judah. And Judah is stepping up to his responsibility. And he tells his dad that he is willing to be personally responsible for the boy. Notice that in this chapter, Jacob is referred to as Israel again. So Israel recognized that he's got to listen to Judah's logic, or else they're going to starve to death. In verse 11, we might get the impression that old Jacob is falling back into some of his scheming ways because he suggests when you go, maybe you ought to put together a little gift for the man. I don't know why they called him the man, but maybe they couldn't pronounce his Egyptian name. zaphnath paneah he's referred to as the man throughout the passage here. So they are motivated and they move on down to Egypt with the things that they put together including their little brother Benjamin and the present and the money that had been restored to them in the previous trip. When they arrived, Joseph announced that they would be taken to his home for dinner he told his steward to take him over there, and he would join them for the noon meal. So now they are hoping that things are going to go well as they've made the long journey. But as they're taken over to Joseph's house, another emotion comes into play. Joseph, as second in command, presented a formidable presence in Egypt. And he knew how to play the intimidation card because he had a purpose in that. He wanted to know what was in their hearts. And it worked. In verse 18, we see, Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in. That he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves and our donkeys. The brothers took one look around Joseph's house and began to speculate what might happen when he came home at noon. Then they began to pour out their story to Joseph's steward of how they had brought the money to pay but then the money had been returned in their sacks on their first trip to get some grain. The steward answered them and said be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you your treasure and your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. It kind of sounds like this guy is understanding something about Jehovah, the God of Israel. Maybe Joseph had witnessed to him. Imagine their surprise when Simeon is released from the prison just in time to have lunch with them. Now we've got all the brothers here in one place, including Simeon and Benjamin. Wouldn't this be a great time to achieve the reconciliation that we're looking for? Well, perhaps, but not yet. The brothers are making a little progress in their attitude because you notice in verse 26, they bowed down before Joseph. And then again in verse 28, they bowed down the second time. His dream dreams about his brothers bowing down to him are coming true. Later in verse 33, when they were to be seated for the noon meal, Joseph seated them in terms of their birth order. Now that really got their attention. And it would ours too if we recognized that the chances of that would be about one in 40 million against it so they know something is up here and I'm thinking they probably thought Joseph had some kind of supernatural powers but the intimidation goes on then another odd thing happened Joseph called over the table waiters and told them to bring Benjamin a huge portion from the head table as a gift of honor Five times as much as any of their brothers had received and then I'm sure Joseph was looking very carefully to see what the expression on the brothers faces would be toward their dad's other favorite son but they were so busy enjoying the sumptuous meal that they didn't even look up and it would appear that they are beginning to get the message that envy and jealousy are a thing of the past. So we would anticipate some harmony, but we need to ask this question Why do you think Joseph did not reconcile with his brothers at this noon meal? I think the answer would be he wanted to be certain that their heart attitude had been changed to reflect true repentance. So, what is necessary for complete reconciliation? after sin has been committed, after someone has sinned against you. Wealth, repentance, confession, and forgiveness. Now hang on to that because we've got to examine how these things are going to fit together. If you've been wronged, don't wait for repentance and confession because you don't have any control over that and it may never come. Forgive and forgive quickly. What does the Bible teach about forgiveness? Many people don't even know a definition, a good working definition of forgiveness. And they flippantly say things about, oh, just forgive and forget, like you could flip a switch and just forget what happened. That's not a biblical idea. You don't get sold into slavery in a foreign country and just forget about it. You're there as a servant, as a slave, in prison, 13 years, two years of that time in prison. And so it would be hard to just mark it off. So in order to avoid that kind of thinking, we want to take a quick look first at what forgiveness is not. Because there is a lot of confusion surrounding this biblical term of forgiveness. What forgiveness is not? Forgiveness is not pretending something never happened. Let's say your neighbor's pothead son freaked out on an overdose and burned your house down. It would be very difficult for you to forget that that happened. All those books and pictures burned up in your house. Forgiveness is not just forgetting what happened. There would be too many charred remains among the, what's left of the fire or left of the house. Forgiveness is not pardoning what happened. Arson is a felony. And that's a legal matter for the judge or the jury to decide. Forgiveness is not toleration of wrongdoing. Action may be, need to be taken by the authorities to keep that from happening again. The young man may be incarcerated. Forgiveness is not a feeling of warmth and acceptance toward your offender in a moment of time. Now in time, as you begin to invest in your offender, maybe you pray for him, maybe you visit him down in jail or witness to him, then your heart can change toward him. And remember what we always say, act your way into feeling instead of feeling your way into acting. You may feel like wringing the guy's neck, but you don't do that because that's not the biblical way. You forgive him and then trust that God is going to heal the pain in your heart, number six. Forgiveness is not giving my approval to wrongdoing. God hates sin and we ought to hate it too. Forgiveness is not pretending that what happened does not hurt. My house burned down. Now I'm homeless. God knows it hurts. Forgiveness is not just ignoring what happened. Just stop speaking to the neighbor and go on about your life. Now we see that in marriage sometimes. I'll just stop speaking to the guy, get a divorce and go on to the next. But that's not the way of biblical forgiveness. Now I know what you're thinking. There are all kinds of extenuating circumstances and we're going to take a look at some of those. Remember, forgiveness is not just pretending that he didn't do it. Number nine, forgiveness is not attempting to justify what has happened. You can't make evil right, but you can overcome evil with good. Romans 12:21. And finally, forgiveness is not excusing what happened. Boys will be boys is not acceptable with God. So now we have that nailed down securely. We can go on to what forgiveness is. We have a de- definition here with which many of you would be familiar, but we'll look at it again. This is one of those basic things. Forgiveness is being willing to accept the pain caused by the consequences of another person's actions, attitudes, or words and voluntarily releasing them from payment for the pain and hurt caused by what they may have done or said. Maybe they spoke some words to someone else and that got back around to you and that really hurt you. What do you do at that point? Perhaps they wanted to help, but maybe it just backfired. What do you do then? I can tell you what the world does. Make them pay. Let them know that your feelings have been hurt and you are in pain. If I'm in pain, why shouldn't they be in pain too? Until they at least repent and do something about what they have done and the pain that they have caused me. Well, that's exactly how we started out this journey Reconciliation. Joseph's brothers were suffering a little bit of pain. Their dad Joseph liked him, their dad Jacob liked Joseph better than he did him. And then Joseph had those dreams. And then he put on that coat that they just couldn't stand, and they were suffering some big time emotional pain because of Joseph. So they decided they would give him some pain in return. Do you know what it would be like to be sold as a foreign slave? Your master, if you messed up something, could just kill you. Or he could beat you half to death if he didn't like the way you were doing things. This was a pretty rough deal that Joseph got from his brothers. All because they had been hurt and they to spread the pain around a little bit. But wouldn't forgiveness have been optional now for Joseph being treated so badly? No, it's not optional for Joseph, and it's not optional for us. R.T. Kendall, former pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, explains what it means if you are not willing to forgive, or you don't continue to forgive. Or if you don't really believe in forgiveness. And some people might say, yes, I'm I'm a Christian, I'm a professor, but you can tell from their actions they don't really believe in forgiveness. Well, here's what R.T. Kendall reminds us about. If you're not willing to forgive, it means that you don't care about the greatest thing God ever did for you, to forgive you and send his son to die for your sins and for the sins of the one you are refusing to forgive. It means you don't mind seeking to actively set up a roadblock to stop God's plan for the world. Reconciliation. That's the reason Jesus came, that we could be reconciled to God. We could be reconciled with ourselves and to each other. It means that you're ungrateful, just like the servant in Matthew 18, when the king forgave him a million dollars, and then he went out to get his fellow servant owed him ten bucks to choke it out of him. That's a bad thing to be ungraceful, but it also means something else. It means you're on your own to deal with your problems in your own strength. Not a good thing. Proverbs 1.30. Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their own way. And that can be some bitter fruit. Verse 33 says, Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. R.T. Kendall's book is Total Forgiveness, and it is a good one. As a pastor, he was holding a grudge against someone, and he gives his testimony in the book. But here's what he has to say. First, then, the Holy Spirit is grieved, and you are not able to think clearly if you're willing not to forgive. Second, the devil gains access because God leaves you to yourself. But you still begin to fancy that God is with you, that you are perfectly justified in your anger. Once that has happened, do not be surprised if at the end of the day you fall into other sins. You may even begin to do things you never thought you would do. Once the devil gains entrance, you begin to compromise all sorts of things relating to money, sex, and integrity. I once knew a man who fell into immorality... But the true beginning of the root of sin in his life was his bitterness. Bitterness may seem a thousand miles from immorality, but this man didn't forgive the one who had wronged him, and eventually he fell into immorality. Why? He was left to himself. Not a very pleasing thought. Now the brothers and sisters in your family may not be as mean and nasty as were Joseph's brothers, but it's still as difficult to forgive them, I believe. And I think the reason would be that the natural inclination when we get our feelings hurt is just to let people know that we are not happy. I might just pout until they get the point. Maybe it's something I say intentionally with a little edge on it. Perhaps it's a facial expression. Maybe I'll just throw a little temper tantrum to show my displeasure. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we adults act like children? Maybe that's the reason they were known as the children of Israel. Do you want more? Rolling your eyes, glaring, muttering, scuffing, stomping your feet. Ignoring the person talking. Disrespect in the tone of your voice walking out or slamming the door. They needn't know about my displeasure. After all, I'm the one that's been hurt. That would be the devil talking. R.T. Kendall goes on. The devil will come around and say to you, now look, normally it would be true that you should forgive. But what you have had to forgive is much worse than anybody else's offenses, so God exempts you. And you say, oh, thank you for that and are silly enough to believe it. Well, we wouldn't be silly enough to believe it. Those kinds of things are not the attitude that Christ had when he was being crucified for our sins. He could have made us pay in hell, just like Joseph could have made his brothers pay in an Egyptian dungeon. But he didn't. You see why Joseph is known as a type of Christ. Instead, Christ accepted the pain caused by the consequences of our sin and voluntarily released us from payment for that pain if we would come to him in true repentance and saving faith, accepting the sacrifice that he made so that we could be forgiven. He surrendered his right to hurt us for hurting him. And we can do the very same thing toward others. It's what Joseph did for his brothers. 1 Peter 2.21, one of my unfavorite verses of the Bible, but here it is. For you have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is a good verse to have written down on your hard drive there. Entrust yourself to him who judges righteously. We have a righteous judge. He may not settle all his accounts on Sunday afternoon, but they will be settled. What? Are you telling me to let this other guy off the hook and just let him go? Well, not exactly. God has him on the hook. And God may have you on the hook as well if you're unwilling to forgive him. You see, God is in charge of all the pain and all the vengeance. And he can dish it out from his infinite wisdom where it needs to be given. God can make folks pay whenever he wants them to pay. And besides that, they may be paying right now because I don't know what's going on in their heart. And they may be carrying around that burden of unforgiveness even while they're at church, even while we're talking in a conversation. Have you ever known anyone who was carrying around a big load of unforgiveness? It's like they have a huge trash can and in that trash can are all the wrongs and perceived wrongs that were ever done to them. And they're hauling that thing around wherever they go. It's a burdensome, cumbersome, loathsome load in their trash can. And it just gets worse in time. Now watch out for imitations of genuine forgiveness because if the burden is going to be lifted, we're going to have to have genuine biblical forgiveness. Here is our first guy, Mr. Demanding. He says, oh yeah, I'm sorry for what I did, but what about you? Look what you did. Implication, what you did is a whole lot worse than what I did, so what are you going to do about it? Mr. Self-righteous. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like those folks. You need to teach them a lesson. And I'm not going to forgive them until they get what's coming to them. Man, you've you, you got to stay away from a person like that if you can. Mr. Unresolved, <clears throat> look, I said I'm sorry. What else do you want me to do? Try a little humility, perhaps. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Mr. Fault's repentance says all the right words, but they ring hollow because there's no true repentance in his heart. That's what Joseph was trying to discern in the attitude of his brothers to see if there's anything real there because he wants there to be reconciliation, but we've got to have some true repentance. We've got to have some confession. Mr. M. Wright's first name, Mike, you have to forgive me because I said I'm sorry. And it's spoken rather forcefully. Mr. Blame Shifter happens to be a lawyer, so he can present a pretty good case. Well, I'm sorry if you were offended. Implication. You got some pain. That's your fault for being so sensitive. Get over it. Mr. Nebulous. I'm sorry for whatever I did to get you so upset. Implication, whatever it was, it's so minor I can't even remember it, and I don't know why you're making such a big deal about it. This guy never deals with issues. Mr. Minimization. Yeah, I did wrong, but after all, I'm only human. Nobody's perfect. And uh, finally, Mr. Extenuating. I'm sorry for slamming the door in your face when you call me stupid. Implication? The only reason I slammed the door happened to be the extenuating circumstances caused by you. Now, these would be examples of imitation forgiveness. By the way, when you're asking forgiveness, you don't want to say just, I'm sorry for what I did. You want to put the ball back into their court. You want to say, would you forgive me for whatever it was that you did? what you perceive that you did. And then they can say, why, yes, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Or they can say, I'll never forgive you as long as I live. But you see, that's not your problem because your problem is to forgive them for whatever the response may be. That response on their part is in God's hands. Here's what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. Uh, The skeleton of this is on your study guide and We'll put a little meat on the bones here, hopefully. Forgiveness is a non-optional responsibility. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If God commands us to do something as believers, he's going to give us the grace to be able to do it. This responsibility is given to Christians. Mark 11.25 And whenever you stand praying... Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. That's pretty clear, I think. And we are going to come back to that one to talk about some things connected with it. This responsibility is never ending. Matthew eighteen twenty-one. Peter came and said to him, Christ, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? pretty generous offer there. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, or forgive him indefinitely. Nobody's going to be keeping account 393 times. I hope this guy stops this pretty soon. It just goes on. It's never ending. It does not condone evil. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, Forgive him. Uh oh. Now we've come down to conditional forgiveness. Just what I wanted. If he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, then I'm just gonna grind it out of him. Or at least in my heart, that's gonna be my attitude. I don't have to forgive him. It says right here. If he doesn't forgive, if he repents, forgive him. And if he doesn't repent, the corollary of that would be. Don't forgive him. Be very careful. We've got to interpret scripture by scripture. And if that were the interpretation, Joseph would have been unforgiving toward his brothers for over 20 years down in Egypt. He would have been carrying around that can of all the wrong that they did to him, a rather heavy burden. Bishop J.C. Ryle can help us out with this one in his expository thoughts on the gospel. This verse is what he's referring to. It cannot mean that we are not to forgive men unless they do repent. At this rate, there would be much bitterness constantly kept alive. But it does mean that when there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, there can be no renewal of cordial friendship or complete reconciliation. And that's what Joseph is looking for. He has already forgiven them, I believe, I'm convinced, but is there going to be complete reconciliation? That's what we want to get. Matthew Henry comments on these opening verses in Luke 17 and he says, the giving of offense is a great sin. The forgiving of offense is a great duty. And then he comments on verse three. Though he does not repent, you must not therefore bear malice toward him, nor mediate revenge. But if he does not at least say that he repents, you are not bound to be so free and familiar with him as you have been. In other words, the relationship can't be restored to what it was and what it should be if the person is still in their sin. But you can forgive them in your heart and be willing to accept the pain that they have caused and pray for them. I will get to that one. Number two, forgiveness may be initiated by the person who was offended as well as by the offender. Do you remember the man who was forgiven the million dollars and then he went out to grab his fellow servant? He should have been forgiving his fellow servant who owed him something. So don't be waiting for the offender to wake up and say, oh, you know, I'm wrong. That guy better go over and ask his forgiveness. No, you can forgive him even while it's taking place. Even while he's standing there talking to you, saying things that would be hurtful, or maybe that would even be untrue, you can forgive him. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to uh, do something about that. We're just talking about forgiveness here. We are required to forgive, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Christ set the example. Luke 23. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He's not just saying, let them go scot-free out of hand. He's saying, bring them to repentance and saving faith. He's dying for their sin. The thief, one of the thieves on the cross, finally recognizes that and gets in on the forgiveness. Ask God to, excuse me, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent, in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then finally, ask God to bring the offender to repentance. Paul tells us about this as he talks to teachers in 2 Timothy 2.25. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Number three, forgiveness should take place during or soon after the offense. Uh, In Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. Luke, uh, excuse me, prolonged anger and resentment block effective communication and destroy unity. And here would be the classic example of a guy who is unwilling to forgive. I hope we don't have any older brother types in the congregation today, but here is the older brother. He became angry. He was not willing to go in. His father came out and began entreating him, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a feast so that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. There's a guy who's bitter and unforgiving. I would hate to have had to live with his bitterness. And perhaps that was part of the consequences that the younger brother was going to have to pay. I don't know. Number four, forgiveness is evaluated in observable performance. The fruit of forgiveness can be seen. The offense is no longer the focus of attention. The offense is not mentioned to the offender, particularly in the family. The offense is not mentioned to anyone else. On the telephone, fishing for someone who will take up an offense for my offense and prolong the hauling around the load there. Feelings of resentment and self-pity are dismissed. Act your way into feeling. Lots of good verses for us on this. Number five, forgiveness has as its reward... The removal of a burden and a great sense of freedom. Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Neil Anderson speaks to that yoke of bondage in his book, Living Free in Christ. As you pray, God may bring to mind offending people and experiences that you've forgotten. Let him do it, even if it's painful. Remember, you are doing this for your sake. God wants you to be free. We're also doing it in in response to his command. Don't rationalize or explain the offender's behavior. Forgiveness is dealing with your pain and leaving the other person to God. Positive feelings will follow in time. Freeing yourself from the past is the critical issue now. And I would agree with that. Forgiving others paves the way for God to forgive us. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now this should not be interpreted to mean that my forgiving someone merits God's forgiving me. It's exactly the other way around. God's forgiving me merits my forgiving my fellow man, even as the king forgave the million dollars that the, ju- that the servant owed to him. So we don't want to think we're earning anything by forgiveness. But if I'm unwilling to forgive, fellowship with God is broken. And that is not a good thing. And I think that's the reason that some Christians may be so bitter. They are carrying some unforgiveness or maybe don't understand what it's about. Number six, forgiveness of sin is impossible except by God. Jesus healed a guy one day on the Sabbath, Matthew 9, 5, and the Pharisees were watching. And so he said to them, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. But I'll tell you so that you can see that the Son of Man has power, has authority on earth to forgive sin, rise, take up your bed and walk. You can't forgive a person's sin. You can forgive the sinner. God will take care of the sin. That's what God is all about. And God, excuse me, forgiveness of others is difficult. Matthew 26, verse 39. Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before, he's thinking about the ultimate act of forgiveness that he's going to be involved with the next day. Very, very difficult. He went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed saying, my father if it's possible that this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as thou wilt. God will enable us to forgive. Again, Ephesians 4.32 be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Now, remember the forgiveness coin. Some of you have seen this coin before. Here's the giving side, and there's the receiving side. Which side can I do something about? The giving side. I can give forgiveness to someone even before they ask. I can't do too much about the receiving side. I can ask their forgiveness, but God is in control of whether or not they are going to forgive So let's remember to let God do his part, and we will do our part. Number seven, forgiveness is very expensive. Hebrews 9.22, here's the basis for forgiveness. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no remission in the King James. Very expensive to forgive sin. It may be expensive to you. You may have really been hurt, but we can do it. Meekness encourages reconciliation, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Humility promotes forgiveness from the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What an appropriate verse for us in this day and time. Then finally, revenge belongs to God. Romans 12.19 Never Take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we close with a very important question. When did Joseph forgive his brothers? Do you think he forgave them when he was pulling out of Dothan in the caravan, going down to the slave auction? Or do you think he forgave his brothers in chapter 44 that's coming next when Judah confessed the sin that the brothers had committed against Joseph? Or was it in chapter 45 when Joseph declared that God had sent him to Egypt, not necessarily the brothers? Or was it after old Jacob died and the brothers said, "Uh Uh-oh, now it's time for payback. And Joseph said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. As an easy answer to that question, when was it? It had to be on the way to Egypt. Because when Joseph gets down to Egypt, he is a free man, even though he is a slave. He's not carrying around a load of all those wrong things his brother did to him, and he's able to do, as unto the Lord, whatever responsibility was assigned to him, whether in Potiphar's house or in the prison. He was a free man and I want you to be a free man. Now what about reconciliation? Well keep in mind Joseph is in a position of jurisdictional authority down in Egypt. So the brothers come down, he wants to be reconciled with them. He's expressing some intense emotion, but he knows that he can't have complete reconciliation until we get the confession and repentance to go along with the forgiveness that he has already given. Of course, they don't know about it, but Joseph knows about it. He's free, and we want to be free. So, the brothers have passed the test thus far. If you will come back next Sunday morning, you will find out if we're going to get complete repentance. But as we close, another question... Are you assured today of God's forgiveness? If not, come to Christ. He tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Experience some genuine repentance in your heart ask God to cover those sins under the blood of Christ. He promises that he'll do it right here, other places in the scripture. He also says in the next verse, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And of course, as Christians, we're covered under the blood, and we can still confess sins that may have come up since the time we committed our lives to Christ. But we're covered. Last question, would you perhaps today be at a crossroad as was Paul Meyer? And you're wondering, do I forgive this person? It may have been something that's been going on for years. Or do I just keep on harboring that bitterness in my heart? Luke 6.37, forgive and you will be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blessing of forgiveness, that we don't have to carry the burden of guilt and all the wrong things that we have ever done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth. Thank you for being willing to pay the price for our forgiveness, the ultimate price. And we're grateful to you that you have sent to us the truth. And then that you've touched our hearts to be able to understand the truth. That you're offering free forgiveness for our sin. If we would but confess that we're sinners and come to you. Lord, I would pray that if there's someone here listening to my voice this morning. Who has not experienced true forgiveness. Because they've never admitted that they needed it. I pray this would be the time. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would touch their hearts to show their need for forgiveness and for a Savior, and even then to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, if there's someone here today who is harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, I pray that this might be the day that they are freed from the bondage that bitterness can bring. Thank you, Lord, that that is available to us, and we can make it available to others as well. Forgiveness. I pray for fathers in the congregation, and others who are in position of authority, positions of authority, as they would have to sort out all the details of so many cases of wrongdoing or wrong things that have been said. Lord, as we come to a time of prayer, we ask that your Spirit might lead us. There are many things about which to pray, and we ask that you would remind us of those things as we enter a time of prayer. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake, amen.